Welcome everyone to the All Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Noni Lamar. I'm so grateful for all of the listeners, you know, rolling with me, listening with me, dialoguing with me in the DM, texting me. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. It's my intention right now to continue to provide medicine for these very trying times. Today, I wanted to talk about anger and rage and how we can use that collective rage and anger and irritation and frustration that we're all feeling toward building a better world and, you know, just putting another stone down on this roadmap that we're walking toward the future. So I asked a good friend of mine, Paola Mendoza, to come on and talk to me about how she has historically used rage and anger to fuel her work. She's incredible. She's an author, an activist, a film director, actress. I mean, she's really an incredible multi-hyphenate. But more than that, she has a love for the world and a passion to change the world, whether that be for people of color, women, immigrants like she's just really really bomb so I talked to Paola on this and you know the sound is a little bit different than normal like we had a bunch of connection issues but I know that the medicine is here and I appreciate you listening even if the sound isn't you know my my favorite kind of pristine sound so thank you for listening to this and sharing it and you know, talking about it with your friends and family and just passing this message that we all have along. So you're going to catch this interview like in the middle of us having a conversation. And this is really an old friend of mine. We've been friends for 20 years and, you know, I've watched her like, you know, do her own independent films, become the artistic director and co-founder of the Women's March and have New York Times bestselling books. She has a new book coming out that we talk about. It's called Sanctuary. So this is just a dear friend of mine, and I'm really grateful that she decided to join me in conversation. I would love to hear what y'all think about it. Let me know. DM me All Heart Podcast on IG or on Facebook. Send me a message via email, allheartpodcast at gmail.com. I hope you're staying well. I send you nothing but love. This rage that I feel now um, is also enveloped in, in sadness as to how we've gotten to a place that in my mind was completely unimaginable. I, 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 I could have never have imagined um, that we would be where we are today, that I haven't been able to that my son hasn't been able to go out and see and play with his friends for six weeks. And it's not because um, of COVID solely. It is because the way in which the administration, specifically the president, Donald Trump, has handled and managed this crisis. He has made it exponentially worse. And his lack of leadership and his lack of empathy, his lack of intelligence, um his lack of compassion is has put us in a place where um my son is suffering not being able to go out and see his friends and 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 the psychological effects of that and he's lucky 
because there's other children in this country that are suffering they don't have food there's other children in this country that they don't have the medical care that they need there's other children in this country that are locked up in juvenile detention when they absolutely should not be there's kids that are being detained in immigration centers when they should absolutely not be in the middle of this pandemic so my rage now is um like it's a wildfire burning and i don't see the end of it i would say that my struggle is every day is how do i make sure that this rage that is this wildfire burning um without end doesn't also consume me right um how do i keep myself mentally sane um and present and available for my son um and prepared to when we are able to go out into the world again uh do the things that need to get done I know that as a mom right now, I can't be on the front lines the way that I've been on the front lines before in previous crises. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really hard for me to accept the first two to three weeks of this pandemic that I couldn't really do physically the things that I would be doing in the past. And I was really harsh and hard on myself about that. But I knew that I needed to be a mother first, that I needed to make sure that my son was okay and that ultimately that I didn't get sick not for my sake, but for my son's sake. And once I was able to accept that, then I started to think about, okay, how can I contribute and help and do the things that I'm able to do given the circumstances that I have right now? I relate to that. I think the last time on our last podcast, I was talking with Patrice about how like Taiwan has handled the crisis or how South Korea has handled the crisis and what great models they are of like centering mm -hmm. human beings and being extremely responsive. And um, it's strange. I don't feel a lot of, you know, I, I like, I think, I think like 45 is a clown. So like, I've never, I, I just, I've never been angry about him. I just have always mm -hmm. like, almost like, it's like a running joke and that's fucked up because of all this. I get angry about the shitty things that he's done, but when I see him, he's just such a clown to me. Like, I'm like, definitely a clown. <laughs> like this dude's a clown. So when I, I'll say on my heart right now has definitely been my dad. I think some of y'all follow me on social and see that my dad's been really sick. He got a COVID-19 positive diagnosis and him getting COVID-19 wasn't what pissed me off. It was more so that I had to force the nursing home he was in to get him to a hospital. Mm. And it was a week of me trying to figure out what was wrong with him over FaceTime. And like, you, you look different, like what's happening and being angry that the way that everything is structured, like I literally can't, do anything and I think that that's like definitely you know we build our sisterhood and our friendship around being active people like we're people who like to do things and to make things happen and to make mm -hmm. the world better right with our hands and so to feel like my hands have been tied for weeks is just mm -hmm. it is the worst feeling for me like I can't do anything about this like so my dad got really sick and I started seeing him start to fade and 
seeing the nursing home asking, do you have COVID positive people there? And they kept lying and saying, no, no, we don't, Mm. you know, and it ended up, they had a complete outbreak of COVID there. And my dad has a lot of insulin issues and blood sugar issues and kidney issues and he has dementia. And, you know, I was really pushing them like, I need to see him. What's going on to the point where they were spoon the the morning they were spoon feeding him and he couldn't even drink a glass of water. I was like, call 911, call them now. They said he's fine. No, he's not. They're telling me fake, fakes, fake blood sugar numbers, fake blood pressure numbers. And by the time I got him to the hospital, his blood sugars were, in critical, kind of critical range. He was septic, like all this insane. He had a fever of like 105. Oh my God. Like just, you know, but this is what happens when you're black and you're Mm -hmm. an immigrant and you're a man and you're old or you appear old, you know, all of these things that were happening. I've been advocating for my father for over 15 years, you know, been Mm -hmm. the person that's advocating for him and his power of attorney and all that. So my anger definitely sunk into, into sadness this week of just being Mm -hmm. really, really sad that I can't touch him. Cause he says every time he's in the hospital, I know as soon as I get to the hospital an hour later, I'll see your face and then everything will be fine. Cause you'll make sure you'll make sure everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And for him not to be able to see me and not be able to touch me and not be able to hear me, that's been challenging, you know? Yeah. So does he know about COVID? Does he know what's going on? I have no idea. The last time I talked to him about it, I said, you know, there's a virus that's happening, which is why I can't come into your nursing home. And he said, okay. I I don't know what he knows about it. Dementia is funny in that, like, you you can know something today that you won't know tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're doing everything that we can right now to figure out how we can get us to him. Mm-hmm. Like we've made like a collective video with like all of these. My sister did such a good job. Like the music that he loves, like people speaking French, like just like a video with audio that really kind of triggers a person because right. he's barely with us, you know? So we just have to kind of like jog that, jog that, get that up, get that awake. But, you know, I was telling Paola before we started recording that I can't sit in sadness. It's not my nature. I get sad you know, like anyone, but it's not my nature to sit in it. I have to kind of be in the place where I want to arrive to. Mm. And for me, like I'm, I'm, I want to arrive to a place of peace, a place of victory, a place of healing. So that's really with him where I'm sitting right now, you know? Well, my hope is that you'll be able to give him that hug and be able to hold his hand and be able to physically also sit with him. So, Me too. 
Who knows when, right, though? Like, even if he gets better, it's like, <laughs> he'll win. <laughs> I know. Who knows when? I want to ask you, okay, we talked about what's kind of bringing us a lot of anger. What's bringing you joy right now? Mm, well, right before this podcast, um, we are staying at my son's uh, father's parents' house. So at the grandparents' house, we're at the grandparents' house. And um, he's an only child. So this has been really tough for him because he misses his friends so so desperately. So what we did as a family is we um, decided to do recreate a baking show called Nailed It in the house. And um, there was two teams. And Mateo was on my team. And his dad and his grandfather were on another team. And we baked these really crazy concoctions of cakes and the theme was earth day and it's a competition and we're like running back and forth in the kitchen and running around to get things and that brought him so much joy he was so excited and so happy um and that obviously as a mother brought me tremendous amounts of joy um so that specific thing has brought me joy in this moment but i would also say on a larger level that's connected to to the recreation of the show nailed it um is the creativity that i'm seeing from people all across the globe um and the creativity of in ways in which to stay connected to people to family members um who they can't connect with the creativity of like the videos that are coming out the creativity of using zoom in in amazing ways uh the creativity of kindness how people are finding ways to still be kind to one another um, all of those things are bringing me so much joy. And I hope that that energy of creativity and really imagining our existence in a very different way because we're being forced to, that that continues when we go back to being able to interact with one another and we use that creativity and that reimagining to, to reimagine and rethink and recreate our world because I do feel that um, there's so much that can be built from the ashes. And I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, this metaphor of fire obviously is clearly in my mind. Like I do feel like this virus has showed us a lot of things, things that a lot of us knew already, things that some people did not know, but what is definitely done is I feel like it's, it's, it's burned a lot of shit down and it's mm -hmm. up to us to rebuild from the ashes. And I hope that what we rebuild is a much better place than what we've had. And if we don't, we go back to quote unquote back to normal which there's people that keep on saying i just want to go back to normal i just want to go back to normal i don't fucking want to go back to normal and if we go back to normal um i, I think it'll be even more detrimental um mm. so to me there is no way in which we go back to normal there is only a way that we push forward um and we create a new um and so that also so yeah, so that's bringing me joy, the creativity of, of the human spirit and the human resilience all around the world. I don't think it's even possible to go back to normal. Mm, I don't, girl, I, <laughs> capitalism I, is strong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they got some ideas of what the new normal is. This is true. This is true. Yeah. I think the the, the main reason that I wanted to start recording all hard again was to start imagining what our new normal mm. is. 
you know, we have to collectively imagine it together. Um, mm-hmm. the, the things that's been bringing me joy, um, just on a totally, speaking of capitalism, I got some money, you know what I mean? Like it was some weeks, yeah, girl. It was some weeks, bitch was out of work. Everybody needs money. Everybody gets, needs to get paid. L- listen, listen, COVID put my, my bank account on a lean. I'm, I'm a tourist, so I always have a savings, but that checking account was like, woo. <laughs> was like <laughs> leaning over like oh my checking account i was start being like everybody hope you only like lentils they're so delicious so cheap because i i you know i make a lot of my bread and butter in commercials and mm. commercials hadn't figured out how to sell yet but because capitalism always wins <laughs> they were like we got it we know how to film you we will have, we will hire your mother and your brother and your sister to be the, the filming people. There so, you go. so now I'm back in business, baby. Like I got work. I was like, great. But I have to, I have to, cake. Yeah, I have to also cast um, in-home directors of photography. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yep. And the other thing is definitely I've been playing a lot with the children. Mm. Um, I've been thinking a lot about why people are so miserable to be with their children. One, I think a lot of people just don't like them. Like, they just don't like kids. You know, I'm not judging. Mm. You just don't like kids. You just don't. You had them, but you don't like them. Me, personally, love kids. Um, but I don't play with them. Like I, I used to play with children a lot before I had them. And then mm. this has given me an opportunity to really play. Like we're playing a red light, green light. We're playing Simon mm. Says. Today I was out there. We were um, doing like some hula hooping, me and Amina. We were nice. like chasing around a grasshopper. Like seriously, like this takes 20 minutes of time. And it, it brings so much joy to me. Like, mm-hmm. it's really, really, really fun, which it sounds like your nailed it experiment, experiment was the same, right? Like <laughs> It was. No, I think about, like, how lucky are we? Yes, it's difficult to have kids right now in this moment. But, like, how lucky are we also to have kids? Because we do have this outlet of just when I'm playing with Mateo, like, the outside world worries are just not there. It's just a moment to be and play and run around. And like yesterday we went on a hike because we're out in the country and we went on this hike and we were like playing orcs and Lord of the Rings. And like, you know, I can't, I can't think about Trump talking, telling people to like inject and ingest Lysol. Like that (laughs) is just not in my moment because I'm like out in the forest. Clown, 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 clowns, clown. Exactly. So it is like an incredible, uh, we are lucky to have that breath to forget, ignore, have joy. I'm so lucky. We're so lucky. I want to talk about your work. So what I love about you, Paola, is that you really take this anger. You, I, I, as long as I've known you, you've been angry. You've been angry as fuck. <laughs> right? I was like, damn. I, I got to get angry. What's, yeah. what's up? You've been, you been, <laughs> you been punk rock from the beginning. I can could, I could name some of the songs we used to listen to. You just always been like, 
just like me, I'm, I've always been anti-establishment, but like you've been raging against the machine since I met you. And I yeah. think it's fucking awesome. And you don't just rage though. And you don't just talk like you turn all that talk and all that rage into action. And I really wanted to talk about your work and kind of the trajectory of your work and where you're at now, but like go back to some of the, the ways that you started and how you started working and what were the seeds. So let's start with um, like you as a filmmaker, because I know when you first started working after college, like you were acting and then you transitioned into making films. And I want to mm-hmm. talk about like one of your films, whichever one you choose, that started off with like some sort of thing that you were discontent about. And how you mm. turn that discontentment into this finished film. So anger is um, a feeling that I've had for a very long time. And it, I would say that it stemmed from um, initially my father's abandonment when we first came to this country. In the sense that like, as a child and specifically as a teenager, that was the thing that I was most angry about was my father leaving the family and having a single mom and 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 I was just so enraged and it wasn't until um my senior year of high school that I just happened upon a theater class I found a way in which to channel that anger a way in which to use put my anger somewhere and that's kind of where I started to recognize um the importance and the power of art personally um college and whatever that was all an experiment and there was lots of anger there but it was just an experiment of art and then when I graduated and I realized that I didn't want to act anymore that I really wanted to create because it also came from a place of anger because the roles in which were deemed available to me were very limiting roles right I was made the immigrant the drug dealer the drug addict that was pretty much it um Mm -hmm. and that raised that anger and that disappointment I was like, I have to do something with it. I'm also a child. I'm an immigrant myself. I came to this country when I was two years old, but more so than anything, I'm a child of an immigrant. Children of immigrants have a tremendous responsibility um, that's on their shoulders, a burden that they carry, at least I carry with me throughout my whole life of like my mother sacrificed so much Hmm. that I have to be worthy of her sacrifice, right? So, Hmm. So in that, my anger of not being able to be an actress anymore because I wasn't happy with it was like, okay, well, I can't just like, not do that I have to do something even more I have to create even more because my mom sacrificed so much I can't just walk away from this dream so I decided to channel the initial aspects of my anger this is a long way to get to what I wanted to say but that initial abandonment of my father that had like guided me for for all of my life until I was 27 I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that I'm gonna make a movie about my mom and my first summer in the United States, everything that happened after my father's abandonment. And so I dove into writing that movie and it it took me two, two and a half years to write the movie. And what I didn't realize at the time was that the writing of the movie and the writing of my, the character of my father in a film um, would be the thing that healed me. That Mm. anger that I had my whole life, Mm. uh, dissipated after I wrote the movie and the reason was very simple but very profound and that was because as I was writing that movie I had to in the for the first time in my life look at my 
father, not as a monster and someone that I despise and was so angry about. I actually had to look at my father as a human being. As a writer, I had to understand, abandon me without judgment, without anger, but just like from a neutral perspective. I had to see my father for what he actually was, which was not a horrible man, but ultimately just a weak man in a country that treated him like shit, in a country where he was going to be a, a busboy or a waiter or a mechanic his whole life in his mind like he just couldn't handle that he did not have that strength and that sacrifice in him so he did the thing that was possible for him was to leave when i realized that um i actually had a lot of compassion because i also was working so much with immigrants like that was a community that story i understood and that story i saw not from the daughter's perspective so the power in this film is called entre nos the power of Entrenos for me was um, a healing that changed my life that I didn't expect. Um, and that film allowed me to completely forgive my father. I, I actually have no more anger towards my father, um, which is extraordinary. It was a big release for me to work anymore. And I think that also allowed me to see how powerful art could be for myself but I feel for others as well mm-hmm. um, I don't expect my art to be as profoundly healing as it was for me for that moment because it was so personal but I do think that art um, is essential to life you know there's a reason why in this moment in time when the world is 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 collapsing in in, in on top of itself that we are turning to poetry we are turning we are going and reading books we are we are going and and looking at art and doing virtual tours through museums we're listening to music we're creating music it is because art is the thing that allows us to live um when we don't want to just survive art gives us that ability to actually live and and to see the world um in the ways in which we normally can't see it and so so I strive for my work to give a little glimpse of that, um, give a little glimpse of, of compassion, love, perspective, um, anger, uh, motivation, insight um, for those that are able to, to see my work. Yeah, I think there's this moment in that film. I actually think about it quite often. I was just talking about it I produced this video, produced a series of videos for a Def Jam artist. And I was talking, I talk about this moment in your film all the time when there's like the mothers sitting there and the children, you're the mother, the mother's Paola, but you're sitting there with the children laying on your lap. And I remember thinking like, wow, not only is she telling her story, and for the first time directing as a woman and writing and starring in it, which for me was so empowering to watch, right? I mm-hmm. always put it as seed in my head, like, oh, if, if Paola can do this, I could do this one day too, right? So just that alone was impacting me. But watching something being created from nothing, which was like this super shoestring budget film, and then I think... Brad like took a bucket of water and like poured it on the like buckets of water were poured on the ground and Mm -hmm. from the lights and the water this very noisy place 
as it started to become dusk, kind of turned into a cathedral. I remember mm. thinking that when I was standing there, like, wow, this story and this moment and this skill of, of this director of photography was amazing, turned into a cathedral. It turned into something holy. Mm. And even when I watch it back from not being on set, I always feel that way. And I tell other DPs that I work with, yo, go check out just this little, this moment. I will send them the frame. Mm -hmm. Like this moment right here kind of created like, like the, that quote, right? The wound is the place where the light enters. You can see the light entering in that moment, you know? Mm. And I, I think that there's like this yeah. snow, snowball effect, like, you make a film and not only does it heal you and your relationship, but it also helps others who've had that same immigrant story to see themselves. But then it also has these other ripple effects like, oh, this woman of color made this. I'm a woman of color. I can do this. And as I move forward in my own work, I can take these other moments to inspire other people and they continue to share that moment with others, right? It, it morphs mm -hmm. and becomes some new, something new. So when we shot this video mm -hmm. that we shot, that same kind of um, reverence was captured because I was trying to explain that, but I could only mm -hmm. explain it with this visual that you created, right? Mm -hmm. And say, we want it more reverent. And so then they, they stage something under a tree and it's like super black and white and kind of leans into a Fellini vibe, but like it still has the heart and the yeah. essence of what I was as a producer on that video trying to get the director to see, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's the beauty of art that we, and artists that see something and we're like, oh yeah, I really like that. And this inspires this. And oh yeah, I want to recreate that. And then it becomes your own thing. And like the greatest, you know, they say the biggest compliment is when another artist steals your art, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. It's true. Like, and it's not yeah. stealing, it's borrowing. It's being inspired by like, I, I have files and files in my computer of images, poems, moments of songs that just inspire me for the moment when I need it, when I need to go back and, and when words, don't suffice and that's exactly like the importance of what I was talking about with art like sometimes it's just like we can't capture the words and what we can only show this feeling and it shows up in this way um and that's essential to living art is essential to living so how did you transition from making films because your film career is pretty bomb like it was you're getting lots of awards <laughs> and then it was really really bomb and then it feels like your work really became super activist, like, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. artist, activist, activist, artist, like they're equally interchangeable. Mm -hmm. How did your work start with the Women's March and how did you get involved in all of that? Yeah, you know, and the thing is, like, to be frank, like, yeah, film was doing well, but it wasn't it wasn't what I wanted it to be. Like I was struggling to, to get another movie made, another feature made. I was making short films online, which is cool, but like not the, not the kind of art that I wanted to be digging my teeth into. I wrote a book, which um, a novel, which I wasn't necessarily expecting to do. It just kind of happened and it 
was and that took up a couple of years and then so frustrated with the industry um not being able to a tell the stories that I wanted to tell because nobody wanted to hear those stories very similar to like what was going on with me as an actress at that time before it was like I want to tell specific stories and no one was funding and no one wanted and a woman and a woman of color and I had made a entrenos for a little bit of money and I wanted a lot more money for my next movies and it just wasn't happening um, the way that I wanted it to happen. And so in the midst of all of that, I um, became very involved in immigrant rights um, with entrenos, to be quite frank, because entrenos kind of opened the world for me into working with advocates and activists around used the film was used in various ways for immigration reform and that under that time was trying to get the dream act passed and we were trying to when that failed it was daca um and then i was very much heavily involved in the telling the stories of undocumented immigrants for daca and daca expansion and all kinds of stuff that ended up not happening um and then trump was coming along and he was going to get elected or he was in process of becoming the rnc the Republican nominee, I was scared out of my mind about mm. Trump from an immigration perspective. For sure. What he meant to immigrants. So, so we all know what happened. Trump gets elected and here comes this rage again. Noni, I really have been angry my whole life. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this anger shows up and I was like, what am I going to do? Um, and I called my friend, my dear friend, and she was uh at that time she had just started as like the one of the co-chairs and I was like yo let me get down like I've never organized but I'm a filmmaker indie filmmaker producer like I can get anything done like that's what indie filmmaking is about is like making the impossible happen and lo and behold like the skills of an indie film producer director transferred over perfectly to organizing mm. and so I started organizing this march um, with a group of like 20 women um, in our offices in New York. Um, and, and my skills, my practical skills of producing were being used, but then also I started to realize like, what was the story we were trying to tell? How are we going to tell it? What was the visual aspects of it? Who, who, how are we going to make this moment, not just a political moment, but a cultural moment? Mm -hmm. And artists create culture. And so that's what I started to focus on is really to create this cultural moment beyond just this political moment. And people that don't understand artists and art, they're always like asking me like the practicalities of how that happened. And it's just like, it, 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 it's, it's hard to talk about. It's a process, right? It's like, mm -hmm. it's our process of like the stories we were telling, the, the, the ways like our social media presence at that time was a very specific thought out methodically planned story that we created um, and we were very, very uh, specific and we made choices around the things that we wanted out there in the world. And like, you know, for me, I constantly, what kept me up at night was this idea of what do you say when the whole world is listening? Mm. Um, and and I mm. didn't think at that moment in time when we were in it that it would be as big as it was but the pressure of it definitely made me feel like mm. um i needed to think in those terms that we needed to think in those terms anyways the women's march was what it was and it was an extraordinary day um and 
the emotional roller coaster that happened that followed a few months after that, I realized that, you know, I needed to do what I needed to do best, which was work with my community, which was work and tell the stories of my community of immigrants. I mean, I needed to do it the way in which I knew how to do it um, and not necessarily organizing political actions and marches. Um, I can do that, but that's not where I'm best suited. I'm best suited at another intersection. And that intersection for me is art being at the center and organizing around art, like taking, taking possibly complicated principles, political moments, and putting them in an emotional space that can hopefully galvanize people into some sort of action. Um, and my community, my immigrant community needed me, right? Like we were being pummeled. We were like, this is right before family separation. Um, and anyways, and then family separation happens. And that was, um, that was something that we as an immigrant community, immigrant rights community did not expect. And it was absolutely horrifying and it was horrible. And it was by far, um, the most, for me, the most difficult and ultimately traumatizing moments of this administration was that family separation, um, was, was hearing mothers call me on the phone, crying and begging me to help them get their kids back, trying my hardest to do that and failing for a very, very, very long time. But then also, I think what I try to do sometimes too is tap into how I'm feeling is not just how I'm feeling, but it's a, it's a pulse that others are feeling. And so how can I create from that pulse? Um, and so that's what I started to do specifically around family separation and worked on that for a long time. You know, this podcast actually started from that moment, you know, mm. it, I didn't know that. Tell yeah. Me. Yeah. This podcast, the first episode was about, family separation, um, about immigration rights, about, it was kind of before the caravan and all of those things began happening, but Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a year and a half ago, almost two years in October. And the, the reason all heart started was realizing that everyone was so disempowered by Mm -hmm. the administration that I wanted to create a space that empowered people Mm. and that brought joy into the conversation and that, you know, joy as an act of resistance, right? Which I know that Mm -hmm. y'all really use that quote with one of the other projects that you do. So that for me, I'm a child of an immigrant as well. And the way in which immigration has been handled even under the Obama administration, but particularly Mm -hmm. in the brutal and inhumane way that it's been handled in these last few years, I wanted to try to create something else, you know, Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. conversation. So around that time and around that movement, and I really was looking to, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the Resistance Revival Chorus, Mm -hmm. because I felt like it was a real tangible act around that, you know, joy as an act of resistance. Yeah, you know, so the chorus, the Resistance Revival Chorus, I'm one of the co-founders, was started by six women, three, four of which uh, were co-founders of the Women's March. Um, And we were exhausted. This is the summer of 2006. 
17, so the first summer of the Trump administration, and we were emotionally depleted and exhausted. Um, and also uh, realizing that we needed, we were artists, the, those of us that started it were, were artists in our own right in various capacities. And we wanted to, to create something that incorporated the organizing principles of Women's March, but also were, was a space for artists, was a space for us to be joyful because uh, we needed to laugh and we needed to be joyful. And when we look to communities that are suffering the most, like there is still so much joy, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because your joy in many respects is all, is all that you have. Um, um, it's the thing that, that, that injustice, the administration's case can't take away from you um it's yours mm -hmm. it's mine so anyway so so we really focused on that and we wanted to bring music and 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 um the history of protest uh to to something so we got grabbed a whole bunch of women 30 women the first night we were just like let's just get together and we were doing we didn't have a musical director and we got together and we sang and it felt so good we mm -hmm. all walked out of that gathering because it wasn't even a rehearsal just feeling so good and like whole and and mm. stronger mm. and everyone was like can we do this again we have to do it again so we were like yeah let's do it again we did it a few days later and again it was just like we felt so strong and so grateful to be in the space with women and so then we were like okay let's do this let's let's make this course happen let's call it the resistance revival course because uh, we're resisting, but we are also reviving our spirit. It is a revival. Mm -hmm. um, and we uh, try to embody this idea, this quote, that joy is an act of resistance. And we've been now together as a chorus for almost three years. And we're a group of 60 women that go in and out of the chorus. Um, we started by having a toolkit and saying anyone could start their own resistance revival course. We put the toolkit online and there are resistance revival courses across the country. Mm. And there's basic principles that we ask them to abide by, but ultimately like do whatever they want. Cause we're not, we don't own anything. We're not like trying to, mm. to, to manage or control anything. We just want people to use music to bring joy and to organize around the principles that we believe in. That's so great. It's really fun. It's really, yeah. really like uplifting. It feels like church. It feels like I was like, yeah, I, yeah it feels very like, ooh, I'm back in church, baby. Like it's, it's really dope. I want to talk to you. The, the last thing I want to talk about is your book. I was like doing a little, you know, research on you for this podcast. It was fun to research your friend. <laughs> <laughs> and I read the first yeah it's so fun I read the first chapter of your book and I was like what the hell like I was so it's crazy right it's fucking crazy <laughs> first of all that shit is around the corner like microchips and shit like that's the main thing I'm not afraid of anything I'm not a yeah. fan I'm not a fan right now of the whole uh Bill Gates microchip. I won't get into all that shit, but that's not my bag, baby. So yeah. the premise alone <laughs> is so modern. It's just a little too close to home in this particular moment. And I know you didn't start writing 
yesterday. <laughs> nah, nah, that should be so freaky. <laughs> so freaky because because I have a co-writer. So when Abby and I we like sit down to write, we would sit down to write. We would be like, you know, I would imagine this, and I'd be like, okay, we're gonna do this, this, that, blah, 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 stories, blah, blah, blah. And then like three months later, that shit would be happening, and it was just like insane. So here's the craziest part of the book. So the book is called Sanctuary. It comes out September first. Um, assuming that the pandemic doesn't make it come out later but the craziest part of the like the most audacious craziest thought of the whole book I think when I came up with the idea was I was like okay we're gonna write this story and California is going to have seceded from the union and um, it will be its own country and like that's kind of like what breaks off the the book essentially I don't know if I don't remember if that happened in the first chapter so forgive me if I'm ruining something for you but <laughs> when I read four weeks ago the governor Gavin Newsom was like saying that California was a nation nation state, and, they were state. Gonna, and they were going to be exporting their their ventilators I was like yo like, yeah it's happening again. Like so much shit in the book that we wrote is has happened already. And like this concept of California being a nation state, its own country is actually possible. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It is a little, it's supposed to take place in uh, 2036. It's, it takes place in 2022. <laughs> That's what it really takes place. It's so. It takes place in 2020. Yeah, it, it feels like it. It's, a, it's like it literally feels like it's two years away. So the concept of the book, let's break it down. So Sanctuary is about. Please. It's about um, dystopian futuristic America, and we are in a moment in time in the United States where the environment is falling apart. There is a deportation is grabbing immigrants who are undocumented um, because they have fake chips. Uh, everyone is chipped. Um, and if you're a citizen, you have a chip. If you are undocumented, you've gotten a fake chip or you don't have a chip and there's checkpoints all over the place and they are checking your chip. And so it's about this little teenage girl. Her name is Sally. She lives in um, Vermont. The deportation force is coming to get her and her family, her little brother, and they have to get to California because California is its own nation state and it is providing sanctuary for all the undocumented immigrants in the other 49 states. So the term is the other 49. Um, and Valley, her mom and her brother take off on a journey to California from Vermont. And very soon into their journey, their mom is taken by the deportation force. So Valley and her brother have to get to California on their own. And so it's the story of a young girl trying to find sanctuary with her little brother. Much more commercial than all of my work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still profoundly, profoundly political. I just wrote the author's note. Uh, three days ago for the final pass of the book. And um, that shit is so fucking revolutionary up in there. So <laughs> the book uh, is super political and I'm very, very proud of it. And I hope people will enjoy it, even though it is very much where we are in this moment. It does have a positive, happy ending, which also is not necessarily how I tell stories. It's really <laughs> super dark. It's <laughs> Do you remember me being like, yo, you ever want to do like a comedy? <laughs> like, <laughs> you see like your scripts next to my scripts. My scripts are all like, hey, everybody, we're skipping down the street. Everything is great. Oh, yeah, we're black still. Shit. Fuck. We're still black. Yeah. You know? <laughs> is that, did you yeah. start? 
is it is your experience a lot of it was really strange for me when a lot of my personal network of people started sharing you everywhere like all of a sudden every single person that i followed on instagram followed you and it was really when you were documenting the central american caravan and i'm kind of maybe you want to talk a little bit about that time and how that led into the book sanctuary because it seems like they have a connection yeah so um I'm my first film that I made previous to Entrenos is a documentary. So I really feel that my filmmaking experience comes from a documentary film background. I've made lots of documentaries. And so when the caravan was happening, for those that don't remember, the caravan was in 2000, the fall of 2018. Um, there was a group of 7,000 people, mostly from Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador who decided that they were going to leave their homes because they were very violent and unstable. And, um, they had no way in which to literally eat and or live in their home countries. And the reason why is very connected to the United States foreign policy, but we won't get into that. So they decided that they were going to walk to the southern border of the United States as a unit, as a group. 7,000 people walking together. It's amazing. Um, it's fucking incredible. It's incredible. I, I, I literally cry every time I think about it. It's yeah, and it is and it's because it's like the, it was really beautiful. They found safety in numbers, right? It, that that route to get to the southern border is extremely dangerous. And so they they actually did. They created what MLK said. He they, they created the beloved community, and that beloved community was a thing that was going to bring them to safety. Was the thing that was going to allow them to take care of their families. Um, hopefully, give them. Uh, a little bit of justice, a little bit of equity. So, so they start walking and it took them about two and a half months to walk to the southern border. And of course, Trump was using it as a political football and was saying that they were coming to evade the country and they had diseases and they were all these men, they were stealing jobs and this, that, and the third. And like, it was this big, awful lie, specifically because I was watching it happen and unfold on Spanish social media. And everyone on the Spanish social media side was talking about all of the families, the women and children and fathers that were walking. Mm. And again, as a mother, this thing, this, this just astounded me that a mom would, it's, it's a 2000 mile walk across like insane terrain, deserts uh, and mountains and tropical jungles and like areas where the cartels are, in in charge of that whole trajectory so i was like i want to go down i want to tell the stories of the women and children to let the american people know that it's not this thing that trump is saying it's not quote unquote men that are coming to steal your jobs it's families so i went down to the caravan and i started documenting in my with my experiences as documentary film filmmaker i just went down and was there with the caravan uh, telling the stories of women and children and um, taking photographs. So I went with Kisha Berry, who was a photographer, and I was doing the interviews. And it was um, the most chaotic experience that I've had. Um, and also very beautiful and very heartbreaking and very um, inspiring in the sense in the way in which when I was there, I went when they were in Mexico, the ways in which the Mexican people were helping them. Um, giving them food and 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 literally like they would stop and all sleep and on the street in certain areas and then people in those small towns would come out and give them food but also clothes and they would be able to change and it was people that didn't have a lot giving to people that actually had nothing but what they had on their backs and the amount of children the sh 
I met one family in particular that I always talk about, which is Rosa. She was a single mother of four. She had a baby who was three months old. So, mm. so same age as Eli. And I saw her on the side of the road breastfeeding mm. amounts all of this chaos. And I couldn't believe it. And then I went up to her and I started talking to her and she had a two year old, a five year old and an 11 year old. And they had been walking for a month at that point. And it was just her and her stroller. She didn't have a stroller because her stroller had broken two weeks before that. And so the 11 year old carried the two year old and the five year old walked and the mom carried the three month old. Mm. And that's how they had made it. Um, And those kids were and are extraordinary. And Rosa was not supposed to be the one that made it to the southern border and crossed into the United States because the odds were not in her favor. But, and this is the beautiful part and aspect of this, this is the thing that I think about so often, um, particularly in those darkest moments and that rage that sometimes consumes me is the thing that brought that family to the border and that thing that actually has that family now in New Orleans in an apartment sheltering in place as a family safely is the unconditional and the extraordinary love that this mother has for her children. It was nothing else. Nothing but that love is what got her to cross that border. Um, And that determination was fueled solely by love. And that to me is what is so powerful and so inspiring and so beautiful. And so in my darkest of days, when I am so angry or so sad or so frustrated or so scared, what I remind myself of is the honor of having a, been able to witness that love time and time again with immigrants and their children just over and over i've heard it i've seen it um i've experienced it with myself with my mom and so that when i feel that i actually don't can't get out of bed or i'm so angry and i fucking want to explode the world um I'm reminded of that love. And that is the thing that gets me out of bed. And, and, and while we've spoken a lot about anger today, it's not what fuels me. And I want to be very clear about that, that the anger is not what fuels me. What really fuels me and focuses me is love. And it is the love that I have for my community. It is the love that I have for immigrants. So I think that where we are now is that we just have to dig even harder into love. So beautiful, P. It makes me cry. My my name, um, my last name that I was given, which I won't say, but it means to go to war for what you love. You know, that's that's the meaning of it. That's my African family is like he ain't going to die. <laughs> like he's not dying. <laughs> you know what our name means? Like like we're 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 warriors. You know, and I think yeah. that's that side of the family is full of anger. And I, I tease you about the anger because it's the thing I'm scared of in myself. My, my anger mm. is frightening. You know, my rage, my rage burns people up. And I really try to stay out of that, out of that place because I know where it comes from. You know, I know that that's my, my family line. Like it's, it's very much a take no prisoners like blade. You know, you, you've seen me angry, actually. You've seen me angry. You've seen me want to fight and, and all of those things. And the older I become and have more to love, you know, more mm. people to love, more people to protect, 
more ideas that I want in the world, that anger has only um, gotten scarier, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I really do think that it can be a tool. It can be a tool that's used. It can be a weapon that's used mm-hmm. if it's used wisely, right? Like it has right. to be used, used wisely. Real quick, there's these two books that I want to recommend to your readers. If they, they've probably read them because they're pretty well known, but it's all about women's rage. Um, so it is, and it's about exactly what you're talking about, Noni, that how women's rage has been used in certain aspects as a tool for positive change. Mm-hmm. Um, and really how often we as women are um, encouraged to not dig into our anger, into our fear, and why is that? And, you know, the theories around these books, I would say, just like to put it very simply, is that as women's rage actually gets shit done. And so the patriarchy is like, now nah, women don't get, don't let, don't be angry. You don't want to be angry. The reason being because that's what shit gets shit done. So um, Dr. Pr- Brittany Cooper, who I love and adore, and Rebecca yeah. Tracy, they have two extraordinary books about rage. I'm skipping on the titles, but um, yeah. I'll find, think- I'll link the titles. I'll find the yeah. titles and link them. I've, I've spent time with Dr. Brittany Cooper. She's a really incredible thinker. Really, really brilliant. So to end, I just kind of wanted to talk about a couple wellness tips before we say goodbye. What are you doing to keep yourself well right now? So I'm going out on walks. So if you're able to go out on walks, I'm able to. Um, But also something that's been really grounding for me, it's very simple and anybody can do it if you can't go out on a walk. Um, is that I've been keeping a journal during this time since the first day of quarantine. Um, and in my journal, I'm focused on writing at least one delight a day. So it really mm-hmm. allows me to like look at the world and be like, okay, what is delightful today? My delights can be as small as waking up and seeing Mateo, the first thing that I see in the morning, or it could be, you know, our nailed it competition. Um, or it can be an extraordinary conversation that I had with a dear friend. So it just really grounding me in delight because I feel that we can very easily get drawn into the darkness and we gotta, we gotta fight, um, to, to find delights. I love that. I'm going to actually, I like that framing. The word delight is so delicious. (laughs) It's so great. It is, and I can't say that it's mine. I actually heard it on a podcast where I was like, oh, I'm stealing that. So hey. I was not the brilliant person that thought of that. Yeah, hey. I don't remember who. It's all, it's all one human condition, okay? We're all here together. One big human mind. My so, wellness tip is to use be propolis. I normally don't recommend to use something that I haven't used for like at least six months to a year. However, this shit is so incredible. Like the bee, I've used every part of the bee, of course, right? Honey, you can can put honey on your face. You could take a little honey before you go to bed. I would definitely recommend that. There's so many incredible, if you take honey before you go to bed, it will actually balance out your blood sugar, help you lose weight, help your mental health, all kinds of stuff, right? Just honey, honey, you can go down the honey route and just be so many places. And then I definitely have always worked with bee pollen. Bee pollen has like an incredible amount of 
um, vitamins and minerals. And I usually use it when there's seasonal allergies, right? That's like my go-to to use bee pollen. It also gives a lot of stamina, strength, all of those things. But bee propolis, I hadn't worked with it in a long time. It's been like many, many, many years since I worked with bee propolis. But right now, anytime I'm really tired, I get a sore throat. And it's so sore that I can't speak. It's like my throat chakra is really impacted by whatever is going on right now. So at the moment I have even a tickle in my throat, and I know there's a lot of people who are afraid they got the rona anytime they got a little. <laughs> They're like, oh, my God, <laughs> I got the rona. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> um, so I would go and just take 30 milliliters. It's like a little squeeze bottle of this bee propolis tincture within 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, sometimes half a day. I'm incredible again. Like wow. it's a very, and I've been researching COVID-19 like crazy since early February before it was even known to be here in the States. And some people have been recommending to use it as well. So I'm not here to, you know, I ain't no doctor. I'm just saying, put that shit in your routine. Like it's really bomb. It's super sticky. If you, if you drop it on your hands, you have to literally scrub it off your hands for about five good minutes. Wow. It's a very sticky substance. It's like the bees use it to create like a barrier into the hive. So it's a very, very sticky substance that comes from a mixture between like things that come out of a bee, between pollen. It's like this kind of magic elixir that nature all comes together to make. I know some, you know, for people out there who um, have penises, I'm just saying. I've heard it does something great for penises. That's all I'm going to say about that. Like, it's just. (laughs) That's all we're going to. Uh, That's just if you if you have a penis or you know someone with one, and they need a little help. I haven't tried that over here. We don't have no problems, but I'm just saying. I'm gonna leave that at that. And so I. I think I've ended every single podcast with like talking something about penis or vagina or something in between. Anyway, thank you, Paola, for being here today. I really love you. And I'm thankful that you shared a little bit of your journey with us. Thank you, Noni. I love you too. And I'm so proud of you. And your kids are beautiful. And Eli, give him those crunches on those cheeks. He's so cute.